brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm incredibly excited today to have with me one of my favorite people and one of the best doctors I know, Dr. Tom Metkus. Dr. Metkus was a fellow with me uh, when I was a SICU fellow, and he was doing a neat kind of combined cardiology and ICU fellowship and has done incredible things since then. He's an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Cardiology. He's a cardiologist and intensivist. He works in both the CCU and the cardiac CCU and is just one of the best teachers and people and physicians that I know. Tom, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. I'm really thrilled to be here, and uh, it's a very kind introduction. I'll I'll echo that right back at you. We, We had a blast together in fellowship. We continue to have a blast now. So we're both on faculty, so uh, I'm really glad to glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, thanks for coming. And so we today are going to talk about what I think is a really interesting topic, which is the management of uh, aortic dissections. And this will be really, I think, appropriate for anybody who is uh, doing a cardiac rotation or who is a cardiac anesthesiologist who wants to brush up on how to manage these in the OR. But also, of course, for anyone working in a an ICU who's caring for patients with acute dissections. So let's launch right in. So Tom. When you think about uh, these, let's just go very basic. What When we say aortic dissection, what is that? So, yeah, that's awesome. So I think that's a great place to start. Um, I like this topic a lot for the anesthesiology audience because these are certainly cases that you're going to see on an emergent basis that are coming uh, as a leveled case or as an expedited case off hours. Um, and so knowing a bit about the primary disease process and how it's classified and what the surgical team is thinking when they're planning an intervention it can be very helpful. Um, certainly a lot of these patients present very sick, and that will certainly impact, I think, your anesthesia plan um, when you're when you're case planning. And then they also can have a lot of residua of their initial event, and they may be coming back either to you in the ICU if you practice intensive care um, or coming back for subsequent interventions. And so I think the idea would be to give some um, uh, framework for thinking about the diagnosis and the impact it would have on your anesthetic care and your ICU care. And so You know, I think fundamentally we all think about the classic aortic dissection, which is kind of a catastrophic event. Um, You have an intimal tear in the aorta, and you have blood flowing into the true and the false lumen, and then you have sort of a a, a reentry tear downstream. 
And there you kind of end up with this double-barreled aorta where you have two lumens um, that kind of rejoin downstream. And that's really the classic um, aortic dissection that, that we all think about. Um, there's different ways to classify it. Of course, if it, if it happens in the ascending aorta, that's the so-called type A aortic dissection, which is really a surgical emergency, and these are the cases that are coming, lights and sirens, in the middle of the night. Um, if it happens distal to the, to the subclavian, that's really a type B aortic dissection, and, and those um, have some dim- different implications for, for management that we'll talk about. We should also mention there, there are a couple of cousins of aortic dissection, which we like to think about, and we put them all under the family of what we call like the acute aortic syndromes. And whereas the classic aortic dissection is, is that first um, disease that we talked about, where you have an intimal tear and an entry and an exit um, flap where blood is flowing into the true and the false lumen, something that's related to that is what we call an intramural hematoma. And this is an acute aortic syndrome that really comes up from rupture of the vasovasorum. You guys remember from your pathophysiology that the vasovasorum are those little blood vessels that feed the arterial wall. And if that ruptures, you basically end up with a big clot within the wall of the aorta. Um, And you don't really have flow in and out of it, but you just basically have a big old thrombus sitting there, kind of a bruise of the aortic wall. So we call it an an intramural hematoma. And then a second cousin of the acute aortic syndrome is something called a penetrating atherosclerotic ulcer, which is kind of an active plaque that can kind of burrow into the aortic wall um, and can cause rupture and pseudoaneurysm and things like that. So all of those things we classify as the acute aortic syndromes. And whether it's a classic aortic dissection, an intramural hematoma, or a penetrating ulcer, they all can have similar presentations, and we'll talk about the clinical manifestations of those. But that's sort of the, the underlying disease process that you should be thinking about when you see these cases come through. Great. All right. That's really helpful. And Tom, so, you know, someone might be wondering, well, if there's a tear and blood gets into this false lumen, there's another tear and blood comes back out, you know, why do we really care? Doesn't that just mean the blood gets where it was supposed to go anyway? Yeah, and so it's, it's a really good question, and, and they end up being very complex diseases for a couple reasons. And the, the implications of this, number one, you can certainly have um, rapid expansion of the, that weakened aortic wall um, leading to aneurysm and perhaps even rupture of the aorta. Um, and the other really important consequence is you can actually have malperfusion. So if that dissection flap occludes an end artery, um, be it to the brain, to the leg, to the gut, to the kidney, um, you can experience uh, a manifestation of end organ malperfusion. And so it's a complex disease, but what that implies for kind of the bedside clinician is that um, if you can imagine a clinical syndrome, be it of aortic rupture or of end organ malperfusion, stroke, gut ischemia, that can be a manifestation of acute aortic syndrome. So what it means is we kind of need to keep our hackles up for the disease kind of in the acute care setting um, and because it can really have protean manifestations as a result of that pathophysiology. Okay, great. So you mentioned that type A, so kind of ascending, is going to be more commonly thought of as lights and sirens, more of an acute emergency. Why is that? Why is that going to be more so than B? Is that because of the organs that may be malperfused? Yeah, so so the... They sort of end up being two distinct diseases. So if you have a type A dissection, which, again, is, is the, the entry tear or the flap occurs in the aortic root or the ascending aorta, really anywhere proximal to the, to the subclavian artery, so in the ascending aorta or the arch. I mean, we should back up and sort of implied there is some familiarity with the basic anatomy of the, of the aorta. So I think this is important to emphasize when we talk about this disease because 
the anatomy really dictates the therapeutic approach, right? So if you think about the aorta, there's the aortic valve and the aortic annulus, which is the plane of where that valve is. And then you obviously have the sinuses of valsalva, which are those little outpouchings where the coronaries come off. And then the sinotubular junction, which is where the sinuses meet the ascending aorta. And then you have the aortic arch where the great vessels come off to the head and the arms. And then distal to that, you have the descending aorta, right? And obviously, the descending aorta is divided into thoracic aorta and abdominal aorta. Um, and so when, whether you're reading a CT report or a TEE report um, or a, an operative note, um, understanding when the surgeon says, oh, it was in the proximal ascending aorta, that would mean just distal to the sinotubular junction. That, again, has some therapeutic implications. The type A's, meaning the entry tear in the ascending aorta or, or the arch, um, tend to be urgent cases because it's been shown in some studies that there's an absolute increase in mortality for every hour that you delay from time of diagnosis to definitive surgical repair. So some older papers estimated that for every hour you delay in taking these patients to the, operative, to the operating room, there's an absolute risk increase of 1% in mortality per hour. Uh, you know, and again, the exact numbers one can one can quibble with, but the point is it's a time-sensitive diagnosis because these tend to expand um, and rupture, and so these are cases that end up being done urgently. Um, the type A's can present with a whole variety of things. Um, you can present anywhere from just chest pain um, to you can actually dissect back and, and end up with a big pericardial effusion if you rupture into the pericardium and present with tamponade. Um, you can present with stroke if you dissect into the head vessels. Um, you can present with acute aortic insufficiency if you dissect into the aortic valve. You can present with coronary ischemia if you dissect into the coronaries. So all of those things end up being very time sensitive, and, and you don't want to wait on these guys when they come in. Right. So the malperfusion to the heart or brain is going to be uh, a little bit more emergent than malperfusion to the lower extremities, for example. Yeah, I think you have to keep your, you know, when... when these patients are seen urgently. You kind of have to keep your keep your hackles up, really, for for any manifestation. And really, the the point is that you know someone comes into the emergency department, for example, with a cold leg, um, and people tend to focus on the leg, and it can be easily missed that actually also they also had chest pain, and the leg is a manifestation of the acute aortic syndrome. So um, uh, that those kind of protean manifestations can be some causes for for treatment delay, actually, and delay in diagnosis. It's really a, a one of those chameleons, one of those clinical chameleons. Yeah, that's really interesting. So this is something to always kind of keep in mind. So let's talk about the presentation. Um, you know, obviously it's possible to find these incidentally because someone has, is having a scan for something else, but uh, how do they tend to present and what, what should people be looking yeah. for? It's an important question. Um, and people are often surprised when we talk about some of the different manifestations. So some of the best data for this comes from a, a group called the International Registry of Aortic Dissection or the IRAD Registry. And these are investigators that, that put together this, this beautiful um, kind of registry of dissections from all across the world. And they had this very detailed case report form where they looked at the presenting features, how they were treated, and the outcome. So this is a, a really beautiful series of papers that came out from this group that I think have, have really captured the essence of how dissections present um, in the modern era. So in, um, in the IRAD registry, um, the mean age was in the 60s, so, so the patients were sort of middle-aged to, to older. Um, 65% of them were male, so a slight male preponderance. Um, and then 95% of patients with acute aortic dissection presented with pain. 
You might say, well, that's obvious, right? It's one of the causes of chest pain. We learn it as a medical student. Um, but that actually implies that, that 5%, right, or 1 in 20 presented with no pain or painless aortic dissection, mm. which sort of blows people's minds, you know, that, that you can have a dissection and present without any pain. Maybe you present with hypotension or shock or stroke or something else. Um, and it turns out that those patients almost assuredly, because they have longer time to diagnosis, have worse outcomes. So painless aortic dissection is an entity. Um, if you have pain, if you're the 95% that have pain, um, it can be in the chest in about three quarters. Um, about half of patients will have back pain. Um, and most patients, probably nine out of 10, have an abrupt onset of pain. So unlike the pain of, like, say, angina, where they say, oh, it gradually built up and got worse, and then I rested and it went away, most patients with dissection um, can point to the instant where their pain started, you know, corresponding to when that entry tear happened. They'll say, I was washing the dishes at halftime of the Orioles game, and boom, mm -hmm. it came on at maximal onset right away. Um, so I kind of make the analogy to, like, the thunderclap headache of a rupturing subarachnoid aneurysm, right. uh, or of a rupturing aneurysm in the brain, a subarachnoid hemorrhage. It's kind of a thunderclap chest pain where it's maximal onset, sudden intensity. Um, and does it tend to radiate to the back? I mean, that's another thing that we learned. So it's, yeah, so it, it can go to the back um, and um, in, in, in some percentage of patients. And then at about 20% of patients, it actually migrates. So if your patient comes in and they say, yeah, it was, it was in the chest and then it was in the shoulder and then it was in the low back, I mm. think that's really a tell uh, for, for a dissection type pain as opposed to other types of pain. And can it be anywhere um, in the back or is there a classic like between the shoulder blades? Yeah, so it really depends on where the tear is, right? So people who have a kind of a more proximal entry tear can have it go to the shoulder blades. Other people will have a lower back as it kind of goes down to the belly. So you can almost imagine the anatomy of the aorta um, and that will sort of correspond to where you feel it uh, along, the, along the axis. Um, it's kind of interesting. About 10% of patients can present with syncope. Mm. It's not something we often think about, syncope and dissection, but, but for sure it happens. Um, one in 20 will present with a stroke. And then up to 40% will have some neurologic complaints. Um, so, you know, as I kind of alluded to, like a really clinical chameleon. Um, so what we end up trying to do is build some heuristics around this. And you say, well, Jesus, if it can show up as anything, how are I supposed to make this diagnosis? Right. Um, you know, I think what, what some authors have, have written uh, very eloquently about is, is this concept of, like, the chest pain plus syndromes. So if you have, like, chest pain plus belly pain, chest pain plus back pain, chest pain plus syncope, chest pain plus vision change, chest pain plus stroke, you know, da-da-da-da-da, chest pain plus something else, you know, ask yourself, could this be a dissection with an end organ manifestation, right? That can, that can kind of help you out. Um, you know, if you have this thunderclap chest pain or migratory chest pain, that can be maybe think, tip you off to dissection. And then generally, you know, given it's a clinical chameleon, if your patient's just sick and you're not sure why, you know, ask yourself, maybe, maybe could this be an aortic problem? Could this be a dissection? And those can be some heuristics that might help out the bedside clinician, like seeing an undifferentiated chest pain case. It turns out that, um, that none of the classic chest x-ray findings, mediastinal widening, um, you know, uh, murmur of aortic insufficiency, none of those are sufficiently sensitive um, or specific to rule out or rule in the diagnosis. So if you have anything but low pretest probability, we end up proceeding to more advanced diagnostics, which I'm, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Yeah. Okay, great. So that's helpful, especially because I think that widened mediastinum on chest x-ray gets jumped on a lot. Certainly, 
I think in our population of post-surgical patients, it's hard to know what to make of that. And I think in the absence of any other symptoms, it's probably not a great indicator of a dissection. Yeah, so, so the, the, again, from the IRAD registry, they estimated that the presence of a widened mediastinum has a relative uh, likelihood of, of two for, having, for, for ruling in aortic dissection, which, you know, if you say, okay, again, coming back to, like, basic epidemiology, right? If you're going to apply a test, then your pretest probability uh, kind of matters, right? So if your pretest probability is very high, and then you do a test like an x-ray that has a, a likelihood ratio of two for the diagnosis, then your pretest probability goes up quite a bit. If your pretest probability is lower and you apply a test with likelihood ratio of two, it's still going to be, you know, it's going to be two times a low number, which is still pretty low. Right. So you can't necessarily rule it in or rule it out with that alone, but okay. it can be contributing for sure. Absolutely. Let me ask you about anticoagulation. And the reason is that I remember being taught as I think a med student that, you know, you have to be careful because if someone comes in with what you think is a cardiac chest pain that you think they're having an MI, you may want to give them anticoagulation. But if it's actually a dissection, that could actually make it worse. Is that true? Yeah, I think it it, it certainly is a clinical dilemma. Um, and, you know, it's it's in terms of data, like we probably don't have any data that randomizes dissection patients to anticoagulation versus not. But for sure, you know, if you if there's a dissection that ended up getting TPA or heparin or a bunch of aspirin and Plavix and comes to the operating room, you know, I think you guys have probably seen these cases. They're going to bleed. They're going to end up with an open chest. Uh, it's going to be a big disaster. So it does speak to the fact that um, you want to make sure you have a clear diagnosis um, for sure. And, you know, there's a lot wrapped into that. Like, do we preload everybody with chest pain with an adjunct antiplatelet agent? Do we take everybody to the cath lab? These sorts of things. Um, and for sure, I think your question points to the fact that you want to have an accurate diagnosis, right? I think you want, if you're treating for coronary ischemia, you want to be pretty sure it's coronary ischemia. Likewise, if you're treating for dissection, you want to treat for dissection. Now, um, patients come in undifferentiated, and that's okay, um, and we should work them up. And we for sure see patients periodically who um, – you know, have a good story for MI, they come in, they get loaded up on their anticoagulant, they come to the cath lab, and then, oh, whoops, we see the flap, you know, when we, when we shoot the angiogram. And right. so, um, you know, those are cases, again, we sort of talk, they have a delay in diagnosis, they come to the OR later, they get their surgery on Plavix, which is not so good. Uh, so it, it's it's not ideal. Um, but again, acknowledging it's a clinical chameleon, um, you know, we, we do the best we can at the bedside. Um, so I, I think that what I would advocate is that if you're seeing someone in the emergency department or in your ICU practice, um, and it's possible they have a dissection, you know, based on the things we talked about, it, it's always reasonable to work it up uh, and then proceed to adjunct therapy, like antiplatelet therapy, if you're going to go down the coronary ischemia route. And if you look at the both the U.S. and the European guidelines for management of dissection, they advocate for a approach based on your pretest probability. So the, the short version of it is that if you have um, medium or high pretest probability for dissection based on those clinical factors that we talked about, you're going to proceed to adjunct to imaging before you go down the uh, coronary ischemia pathway unless you have something very, very obvious. But remember that also dissection can like manifest as coronary ischemia, right? You can dissect into your right coronary and have a big STEMI or something like that. So right. it ends up being hard. But I think the, the point that you're making is that an accurate diagnosis is really essential if, whether you're treating MI or acute aortic syndromes. Right. Great. All right. And then what about uh, EKG? So obviously an MI has classic findings on an EKG, though not always. 
Um, what about a dissection? Are there things yeah. you would see on an EKG? So the most common thing that the most common abnormalities that people see um, is basically just LVH, right? Because a lot of these patients are going to be hypertensive um, and they're going to have LVH on the cardiogram. Um, and it turns out, again, in, in the IRAD group's data that the LVH on the EKG had a likelihood ratio of, of somewhere around two to three for a dissection in a patient presenting with chest pain. Um, so not really sufficiently high to rule in or rule out the diagnosis. Um, you know, then you kind of get into the, the special cases where you can dissect into a coronary and have a manifestation of coronary ischemia on the EKG. Something I've not seen data on, um, but I do think happens in clinical practice, and maybe you guys have seen it in yours, is that patients with impending aortic rupture, be it in the belly or into the chest, can sometimes present with a very vagal-looking syndrome. They get pale, they get clammy, and they can actually have a lot of sinus bradycardia on the EKG. And at least based on my kind of anecdotal clinical practice, usually those patients are really sick. So there's probably something to that, that if you have um, blood in your peritoneum or blood in your chest, you can get a vagal reaction, and that can manifest on the EKG. The truth is I think the EKG is probably most helpful for ruling out other obvious causes of the chest pain syndrome. So is the EKG suggestive of pulmonary embolism or a big MI or something like that? So that's probably the best utility to the EKG is, is ruling out other things. Great. All right, that's helpful. Now let's talk about the etiology. You mentioned hypertension because most of these patients are going to have LVH because of their hypertension. Is that the most common cause of, uh, of a dissection, is out-of-control hypertension? Yeah, so in um, so about three-quarters of patients with a dissection will have some history of hypertension. Um, and then the other predisposing conditions that you run into, um, about 5% will have a known diagnosis of Marfan. Um, and then obviously there's other connective tissue diseases that, that, that can manifest, Lowy's Dietz and other sort of rarer ones. Um, so, you know, if your patient looks like they have a connective tissue disease, be it Marfan's or one of the, one of the variants, um, you could think about that. And that's, you know, again, not as common as garden variety hypertension, but because it's high risk, you'll see those patients coming in with dissections. Um, uh, bicuspid valve disease is, is one that you see. So about 1% of patients in the population have a bicuspid aortic valve. And there's an aortopathy associated with that, uh, aortic uh, dilatation and, and um, abnormalities in the aortic wall. And that also runs in families. Um, aortic dissection syndromes themselves run in families. So there's an autosomal dominant aortic dissection syndrome that doesn't come with a syndromic appearance like Marfan's or something. So those can be familial. Um, and then it's interesting, about, um, about 16% of them will have a prior cardiac surgery. So once you've instrumented the aorta in some way, um, be it at the cannula site uh, or at the site of a prior anastomosis, you, know, you, you create abnormalities associated with that. And so I think prior cardiac surgery is another one to kind of keep in mind. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right. So you covered this a little, but let's talk about when they do and don't need surgical intervention. So do you ever medically manage some of these? Do they all have to go straight to surgery? And how do you know which is which? Yeah. So I I think for sure in a vacuum, the guys who have a type A aortic dissection, um, surgery beats medical therapy. The mortality with medical therapy, meaning just blood pressure control and observation, for a type A dissection is exceedingly high. Um, you know, I think the data shows that very few of those patients will end up having survivorship. You know, mortality would be in excess, sort of ballpark, 80, 75, 80%, very, very high mortality mm-hmm. without surgical therapy um, for type A dissection. So that's the classic dissection, you know, true and a false lumen, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, it's universally a surgical disease. Now, um, so one thing that often comes up is that 
um, you know, maybe your patient is very, very old. Maybe they're 85 or 88, or maybe they have a huge stroke as a complication of the intersection, and they're not a candidate for cardiopulmonary bypass. Um, you know, and, and these are kind of end up being clinical judgment calls, right? And again, there's no randomized data for, for those people, and you end up having to make a team decision. The, you know, some groups have published these papers where they look at things like, um, you know, relative risk of mortality with surgical therapy versus medical therapy, meaning patients who got surgery or got medical therapy as a function of age. And the cut point where the risk of medical therapy um, is lower than the risk of surgery, that is to say the mortality risk with surgery is higher than the mortality risk for medical therapy in this one paper was probably like 85 to 90 years old. So, you know, and again, you're comparing retrospectively two groups who are quite different, but... Um, the point they make is like age alone is not necessarily a contraindication because we know that mortality with medical therapy is so high. So, you know, obviously we know functional 85-year-olds and we know more about 60-year-olds, right? So age alone doesn't need to do it. You need to kind of look at the comorbidity picture. But you should know that medical therapy is very, very uh, – has poor outcomes for type A dissection. So if they can get to the OR, if they're a surgical candidate, they probably should. Their case reports of um, – like percutaneous therapy, like endovascular therapy and TVAR uh, in the ascending aorta and in the arch. Um, I don't think we have any good long-term data or or randomized data for that. But um, as you guys know from your vascular surgical experience, um, you know, the things we can do endovascularly on the vascular surgery side is expanding month by month, year by year. And so um, for sure, groups are interested in endovascular approaches to to type A dissection, um, but that's still at the like case report level. Um, so, so I would say nearly all of the type A's, if they're a surgical candidate, should get surgical therapy. You know, for the type B's, meaning dissection in the distal aorta, in the descending aorta, um, it's a little more controversial. So we know that open surgery for those guys is very, very morbid. High rates of actually paraplegia because you injure the, the perfusion to the spinal cord. Mm-hmm. Um, so open surgery for type B dissection is almost universally uh, highly, highly morbid. So very few people do that now. Um, Medical therapy is effective for those guys. Medical therapy meaning control of blood pressure um, with serial imaging, unless the type B dissection is what we call complicated. So, So let's talk about what a complicated type B dissection means. So a complicated type B dissection is basically one where you have a high risk of bad outcomes like imminently. Generally, that means you have, like, an impending rupture. So if on your CT scan you see, like, periaortic hematoma or an outpouching, something like that. If you have malperfusion to your gut, so if your bowel is ischemic or your kidneys are ischemic and you're not peeing, things like that. Um, So visceral malperfusion uh, or malperfusion to the leg, for example. And then the other two classes, if you have refractory aortic pain, so you've controlled the blood pressure in the ICU, but the patient still has aortic pain, um, yeah, yeah, doc, my belly pain's still there. It still hurts like heck, even though your blood pressure is 110 and your heart rate's 60. Right. And you know, we'll talk about medical therapy, I'm sure, in a little bit. Yep. Um, and then the other one's refractory hypertension. So you've cranked them on the labetalol and esmolol and whatever, uh, and you still can't get the blood pressure down. So those group of patients who have those categories for type B probably should go to intervention because mortality is high without it. And the intervention of choice usually is TVAR. So uh, our vascular surgical colleagues can take them to the OR and usually cover the entry tear with a, with a covered stent, uh, and that'll 
uh, kind of alleviate those complications. And Tom, what is T-VAR? Yeah, so T-VAR is endovascular aortic repair, where um, usually the vascular surgeons will, will cut down on the vessel, um, put in a big sheath, and then they have these covered stents, which are sort of like coronary stents, but they're, but they're covered in mesh. Um, and it'll expand, and you'll basically stent the aorta, cover the entry tear, um, and really obliterate flow into that false lumen um, is kind of the idea. And so, um, you know, this really, uh, my sense is, started, um, you'll see these also in your AAA cases where you'll do kind of endovascular repair of an abdominal aortic aneurysm. Um, same idea, you generally use a shorter stent that's not a branch stent like they would use in a AAA um, but that would kind of be the treatment of choice for what we call a complicated type B dissection. That's usually um, uh, almost, at least at most centers, that would be vascular surgery who would do that, although certainly at some centers maybe it would be uh, like interventional radiology or some rarely interventional cardiology, but, but most of the time it would be the vascular guys. Yep, okay. So that's uh, a much less morbid procedure than an open uh, repair. It is. The, da- the data shows that I think the rates of paraplegia are not... Um, not as high as, as if you go in um, and do open repair. Now, it sort of depends on, at least my sense of it, the extent of aorta that you cover, right? So if you cover all the way down to the, to the spinal arteries and the Adam, artery of Adam Kiewitz, you're at higher risk. When they do it electively, um, the vas- some centers uh, and some vascular groups will put in a spinal drain um, and drain the spinal cord or drain the spinal fluid to increase through, uh, spinal perfusion pressure. And that, the, again, observational data suggests that will uh, mitigate the risk of paraplegia somewhat. Um, now, in the acute setting, th- there's not always time to do that. So in the elective setting, they'll usually do that the day before. they say, hey, can you put in a spinal drain for me? And then the next day, come back and do their intervention. Right. Um, but for the dissection crowd, that's not always possible. Right. Okay, so we, we have type A's, which need to go to surgery. We have complicated type B's, which, as you said, involve a variety of features like impending rupture or... Um, ischemia to the gut or refractory pain or refractory hypertension, these patients probably need an intervention too. And then we've got the, let's call them simple type Bs, and those patients maybe can get a trial of medical management. So let's talk about that. What do we mean when we say medical management? Yeah, so it's good. So so this is an important, um, important topic. Um, so now you've sort of assessed the patient, right? They're not going lights and sirens to the operating room for a type A repair. Let's say, okay, it's a type B dissection. They're going to come to your ICU. Um, and um, we're going to follow them for any evidence of complications. They don't seem to have any, so we're going to try to manage them medically. And uh, you and your vascular surgery colleagues will kind of see them in the ICU and, and assess them. And I think the first principle of caring for these guys um, is that it's really, a, you know, I call it like a bedside disease, right? You have to be present. You have to be periodically reassessing them because, remember, some of the complications, the indications for urgent intervention are refractory pain, which means someone has to be asking them periodically if they're having pain, right? So right. they get serial reassessment um, by the nursing staff and by the physician staff. Um, and also refractory hypertension. So someone needs to be monitoring the blood pressure very closely. Um, these aren't patients that can really be tucked in and then checked on every eight hours. I think they need pretty frequent reassessment. Now, um, if you're going to use medical therapy uh, and there's no urgent indication for intervention, basically the principles are heart rate control and blood pressure control, right? Um, and Heart rate control is important because the aorta is subject to these shear stresses, right? So if you have these pressure impulses coming down the aorta, the rate of pressure rise in the aorta, or the change in pressure over time, the DPDT of the aorta, really correlates with shear stress, which also correlates with risk of dissection progression. So you not only want to control the blood pressure, you also want to control the heart rate, and you also want to control the rate of rise of aortic pressure, or the DPDT. 
So, for example, you guys all know many drugs that can affect the blood pressure. You can give a vasodilator, let's say nitroprusside. But that actually, as you know, gives you a reflex tachycardia, doesn't it? So the mean arterial pressure will be lower, but the patient will be tachycardic, and the DPDT will actually go up. So sure, you've controlled the blood pressure, that's great, but you've made the patient more tachycardic and, and the aortic dissection can progress. So remember, the principle is to remember blood pressure control and heart rate control. The other principle um, uh, is that you want um, to kind of meet your goals, right? You want to meet heart rate and blood pressure goals. And so the guidelines um, have given us some parameters to do this. Um, the European guidelines for aortic syndromes suggest getting a systolic blood pressure under 100 to 120, and your mean arterial pressure like 60 to 75. Um, And the U.S. guidelines suggest getting your heart rate under 60. Um, And so between the two of them, you're kind of getting an idea of where you want to go, right? So you want heart rate control and blood pressure control. So we can talk about the agents that we use to do that. Um, But we should acknowledge first that, um, as, as you guys know, that different patients have kind of different like autoregulatory mechanisms, right? So a lifelong hypertensive is going to have different autoregulatory mechanisms than a 20-year-old who's healthy with Marfans, right? So there are definitely some patients where you drop, you know, you prescribe Esmolol, you drop the heart rate way, way down, you drop the blood pressure way, way down, and then they stop peeing and they get delirious and they get drowsy. So you start to malperfuse people, right? So, so again, that just speaks to the point if you have to be present at the bedside and you say, boy, I'm titrating my drips, and wow, I'm, I'm malperfusing the patient. I'm going to maybe let things ride a little higher. Oh wait, now their aortic pain is back. I'm going to go a little lower. Right. Oh wait, they're drowsy again. They're not peeing. So, so it ends up being this kind of dance where you want to get them to the sweet spot where, essentially, their heart rate and blood pressure are as low as you can get it, but they're still perfusing like their brain and their kidneys and whatever. Yep. And by the way, if you can't do that, if you basically try to drop the heart rate and the blood pressure and they malperfuse, they stop peeing and whatever. But when you let it be permissive, that aortic pain comes back, that might be an indication to do an intervention because right. you're failing medical therapy. Yep. Um, so that's kind of the principle. And, you know, we have a lot of agents that, that one can use for that. Um, but I think the first line in the principle of wanting heart rate control and blood pressure control is Esmolol is really, really good. Um, you know, it tends to be short acting, as you guys know, so you can titrate it rapidly. It also tends to be a huge volume load, so they end up getting a ton of fluid, which can be a problem. Um, a labetalol infusion is similarly really good. That gives you heart rate control and blood pressure control. And then just remember, if you're going to use a direct vasodilator, uh, you know, nicardipine or, um, or um, nitroprusside or hydralazine, things like that, you have to also blunt that reflex tachycardia. You know, that's really important. So, so the don't use the direct vasodilators in isolation. If you're going to use them, couple them with a beta blocker for blood pressure control. Right. And then the final point to make is that um, uh, not all patients with acute dissection will present with hypertension. Um, so, so in the type Bs, about 25% of them will be normotensive or hypotensive, maybe related to impending rupture or that vagal response or something like that. Versus of the type A's, it's about a third, a third, a third. So a third will be hypotensive, a third will be normotensive, and a third will be hypertensive. So all of that heart rate and MAP and blood pressure control stuff really replies to the guys with hypertension that you're treating. If you're normotensive or hypotensive, you know, I look carefully to see if you have a complication, right? Like cardiac tamponade, acute aortic insufficiency, uh, coronary malperfusion, etc. Because those guys, again, are going to maybe go to intervention, and they're very hard to manage in the ICU. Right. For example, what would you do with a patient who's hypotensive but tachycardic? Yeah, exactly. So those guys end up being really hard. So the classic situation there, uh, you know, again, if, if you come back to the type A gang, is you're 
you're hypotensive because you dissected into your pericardium and you're tachycardic because you're in shock, right? right? Um, and so for those guys, you know, that's a surgical emergency. Like there's almost no medical therapy for that. Right. Um, even pericardiocentesis, you could imagine if you put a needle into that effusion, but it's aortic rupture, you're just going to be sucking blood out of the aorta and you can have hemodynamic collapse very quickly. So, you know, there's no great answer. If you're in about to arrest, some people would say, you know, do pericardiocentesis, take out just enough blood so that they regain a pulse and then get them to the OR rapidly. Right. Um, but that's essentially just a, a critical surgical emergency. The other one that comes up is like the patient with acute aortic insufficiency who's, who's tachycardic because they're in shock from aortic insufficiency. And if you do blunt that heart response, if you prolong the heart rate, you prolong diastole. So they're going to have more diastolic backflow and they're going to get worse, right? right? So you want a higher heart rate in acute aortic insufficiency. And those are patients where really medical therapy just is not successful and they need a, they need a surgeon right. urgently. Great. All right. So this is really helpful. So we want to make sure we deal with the heart rate and the rate of rise, that DPDT. Luckily, beta blockers will do both. I often think, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, but I think of the DPDT as being related to contractility. So mm-hmm. anything that's going to decrease contractility, like a beta blocker, is going yeah. to decrease DPDT. So that'll help us. And of course, it also decreases heart rate, which will help us yeah, in these situations. Great. And then if you need, in addition to your esmolol or labetalol, if you need to further lower blood pressure... In, once you've got your heart rate under control, you can add a, at that point, you can add a direct acting vasodilator. Yeah, that's how I think about it. I think that's a great approach. Great. All right. So let's move now to surgical management. So we've talked about who requires surgical management, what actually, and we don't I think, need to go into all the details of every single operation, but, you know, who's doing these? We said that the if, if it's a descending, um, a type B dissection that needs surgical intervention, that's often going to be the vascular surgeons. The type A's are going to be cardiothoracic surgeons. Um, but what are they doing and, uh, you know, do they require bypass? Uh, do they require circulatory arrest? So what's going yeah. on and what do you think are the important things to know? Yeah, it's really great. So I think the, the big principle, and again, for, for, for those of us, you know, none of us are, are surgeons, right? But we really support our surgical colleagues, be it, be it by, um, by doing the case with them and then also caring for them in the ICU and afterwards. And so as a, as a cardiologist and an ICU person, I think about the, uh, the intervention that the surgical team is going to end up doing is really dictated by the extent of disease, right? Which has a couple implications, not the least of which is that um, for those of you who do uh, TEE as part of your intraoperative practice, it means that as an imager, your role is pivotal in defining uh, the extent of the disease, right? Um, because it's really going to dictate the surgical approach. So um, I think for most of the guys who have a type A dissection, uh, the cardiac surgeons are going to be captaining the ship there. Um, and for those guys, um, there's a couple principles that, that they that they adhere to, um, the first of which is whether there's aortic root involvement or not. So remember that we talked about, um, you know, there's the aortic valve at the annulus and then the sinuses and then the sinotubular junction. So if your dissection is really limited um, to the ascending aorta, so if it does not involve the aortic root, most of those patients can get away with a tube graft um, where they, they, they'll go on bypass, but they can clamp uh, at the ascending aorta and just basically put a tube graft in kind of interposition between the uh, kind of proximal ascending aorta. And usually they'll do what's called a hemi-arch, meaning they'll leave the branch vessels to the head intact and then take the bottom half of the arch as a kind of beveled graft. Um, and, and that 
will resolve most of those dissections that's sort of that's sort of focal there in the ascending. If your root's involved, meaning the dissection comes down to the aortic annulus, maybe involves the aortic valve, um, maybe involves the coronaries, that sort of thing, that adds a layer of complexity to it because those patients need to have both a root and an ascending done. And there what the what the surgical team will do is they'll take usually a composite graft that'll involve either tissue valve or mechanical valve. The coronaries have to be taken out as coronary buttons, then re-implanted into the graft. And then the patient's left with an aortic valve prosthesis, at kind of a synthetic aortic root with coronaries re-implanted, and then the, the ascending. Um, you know, most of the time for the type A's, if you get that done, that kind of addresses the entry tear, and there can be residual dissection in the descending, which we'll talk about how to deal with, but that usually alleviates the malperfusion, and most patients can get away um, with that. Now, as you guys may or may not have seen in your, in your vascular surgery rotations and in, the, in your um, you know, vascular practices, um, once you start getting into arch surgery, um, you can become very complicated with different sorts of branched grafts, um, circa rest time, integrated cerebral perfusion, um, you know, no cerebral perfusion, you're doing nears, you're doing all these things. Um, and that seems to be much more heterogeneous based on the surgical group and their philosophy. So, you know, our, you, what you may see, and it's always a battle, right? These are sick patients. These cases are in the middle of the night. So, so some philosophies say, you know, just do what you can do to get the patient out, and then you'll deal with the residual dissection later. So I haven't seen a lot of patients get really complicated arch work done. Um, what they most people do is they do the tube graft and or the root if it needs to be done, and then kind of get out of dodge. Um, now, um, that's kind of the type A's. For the type B's, again, you're, most of these are going to be endovascular cases where you're going to cut down on the on the femoral artery um, and put in a big sheath and go up and do it kind of in a, in a, with fluoro typically. Um, and the idea there is to get a stent kind of up to cover the, uh, to cover the entry tear. Um, and, you know, and we'll talk about what the implications of that because you are leaving some typical residual dissection, be it in the arch or the descending, right. to kind of deal with another day. But I think those are the principles of, of surgical therapy. Um, and even with that, um, you know, these patients end up coming out to you in the ICU and they're sick uh, and, and you have a lot of work left to do. So I think the surgery is the first part and then the ICU care is the second part. But essentially the surgical procedure that's recommended will be dictated by the extent of aorta involved. Right. And then just to touch on a couple of things. So a cardiac bypass, obviously we people know what that is, and we've talked about that in other podcast episodes. Circulatory arrest, so that is the cessation of all circulation, in, in, so yeah. we're not actually perfusing the brain or the body so, or anything. Right. So if you have to work in the arch, so, so if you do cardiopulmonary bypass, you, know, you, can, you can clamp the aorta, and then you can have an arterial inflow distal to that, and then if your distal cannula is there and, and your head vessels and everything else is intact, then you're going to perfuse the whole body, right? Um, but if you're working up in the head vessels and in the arch, um, you obviously can't do that if blood is, is flowing. Um, so you have to do th- these procedures under what they call circ arrest. So they typically will cool the patient down to like deep hypothermia, like 22 or 25 degrees. Um, they'll pack the head in ice. They'll give a big dose of steroids. Um, and then basically they'll, they'll come off altogether um, and then do the arch operation and, and you know, as quick as you can, and, and then kind of kind of get back on pump once the arch is, operation is done. Now, um, one can do that also with what they call integrated cerebral perfusion, which means you cannulate um, one of the either one of the carotids or, or one of the branch vessels, and then you perfuse the brain integrated, uh, and 
you know, if you have an intact circle of Willis and you kind of perfuse up one one side, you you'll get integrate cerebral perfusion. So you'll sometimes see that done. You'll see circ arrest with integrate cerebral perfusion uh, or not. But I think that the spirit of it is obviously um, that there's a risk of neurologic outcomes that are not good with that. So you want to minimize if you have to do circ arrest. You want to minimize circ arrest time. Um, and you don't want to do it unless unless you have to is kind of the, the principle. Yep, absolutely. All right. You mentioned residual descent. So let's say you repair the arch, but there's residual descending aneurysm. You come back and have vascular yeah. surgery, fix that another day? Yeah. So this is like one of the most interesting areas, I think, in, in vascular medicine and aortic medicine um, is, you know, what to do with that with that descending part. So you can imagine the, the one of the principles is that the the aorta is still abnormal, right? It's, it's dissected. And, you know, the patient's heart rate and blood pressure is controlled and they're doing fine and you fix the life-threatening thing in the, in the ascending, but they're left with this basically abnormal aorta. And that, over time, can continue to dilate, can become aneurysmal, um, and, and can become a problem. So some groups have advocated, um, like let's say you have a, a type B dissection that's managed medically and the patient's doing fine, some groups have said, well, boy, you know, if that thing's just going to become aneurysmal and continue to dilate over time, why not fix it originally? And that there, you sort of have these trials of endovascular repair versus medical therapy for uncomplicated type Bs. Mm-hmm. And you can sort of take a similar approach for the patient with a type A dissection that comes down around the arch and into the descending, that you fix the ascending part, but there's residual dissection in the descending. So if you have dissection in the descending that you're managing medically, people have said, oh, should you just fix it all in one go? And... Um, Generally, if you go in urgently, like right away, right after the de- right after the type B dissection happened, and you try to do endovascular work, the aorta is a bit friable, and so there's a risk of retrograde dissection, or if you're using stiff wires up there, um, of worsening the tear. Um, so there's actually an increased risk of acute, kind of almost iatrogenic type of aortic events over, say, the 30 days. Um, kind of immediately after the event. Hmm. So some people have advocated, okay, get them out of that, what they call the hyperacute phase, which they've defined as within two weeks, and then go back and you can either T-VAR it or watch it and T-VAR it when it starts to dilate. So, you, you know, most vascular surgery groups have kind of a practice philosophy around this, and some will say, well, you know, T-VAR it right away. But but I think our group here and, and many groups have said, well, if they're following up and you're getting serial imaging, fix it when it starts to dilate. So when it gets to that five centimeters or growing more than 0.5 centimeters a year, that type of thing. So if you have, if your patient's leaving the hospital with residual dissection, either after successful type A repair or after medically treated type B dissection, um, most groups will do something like image them with CT angio before they leave, at two weeks later, at three months later, maybe at a year and then every six months after that or something like that. Mm -hmm. The principle being that you want to capture it when it starts to dilate and then you can fix it then is kind of the idea. But I think the take-home is that it it does remain uh, an aorta that's at risk um, and something that has to be followed. Uh, One group has published that the imaging characteristics of the residual dissection are important. So um, if you have um, a thrombosed false lumen, that that's not so bad. If you have free flow in and out of your false lumen, that's not great. But if you have partial flow into your false lumen, that's actually the worst because it means you've got pressurized blood coming in, but not all the pressurized blood's coming out. Mm-hmm. So those guys actually have worse outcomes because probably that aorta is at higher risk for, for dilatation. Um, and so you might see your group doing something like, oh, it's got 
partial thrombosis of the false lumen, it's higher risk. Maybe we should move to get this guy done a little sooner rather than later. Interesting. Okay. So let's say you have a dissection. You get it repaired surgically. What's the recurrence risk? Are you now set? Are you back to baseline? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, there's there's like a couple things wrapped up in that. So one is kind of what we we're just alluding to, meaning do you have some residual dissection somewhere else that's going to become, you know, going to be a problem? Um, you know, if you have replaced, the segment you've replaced with Gore-Tex is usually pretty good, right? That, that usually lasts. But of course, you've got suture lines on the other side. So you can have um, pseudoaneurysms or kind of problems at that anastomotic site. And then... Um, Certainly in the guys who have, um, like, aortopathy, like either Marfan's or Lowy's Dietz or even bicuspid aortopathy, you know, anywhere you have residual aortic tissue, the biology of that aorta is still abnormal. So, for example, we've had um, Marfan's patients who come, they get that root operation that we described where they get a prosthetic valve, a Gore-Tex root, a Gore-Tex ascending, and then you just get the coronary buttons reimplanted. But they take a few millimeters of aorta to make that coronary button, and that can actually become aneurysmal. So you have these kind of Mickey Mouse ears, these three-centimeter aneurysms sitting right where your coronaries are. So mm. really, you know, anywhere that there's congenitally abnormal aorta can continue to dilate and continue to cause a problem. Um, it's also an aorta that you've instrumented. So remember that, you know, 16% of guys with an aortic dissection will have had prior heart surgery. So you can keep in mind that they're certainly at risk um, if they've had one aortic event. Um, and I'd say more so if they have some predisposition to aortopathy. I think what that implies um, for those of us who care for these patients in clinic and certainly for those of you guys who see these patients in like the periop medical home and things like that where you're doing more perioperative medical management um, is that you want to control everything you can control. So there are implications for chronic hypertension management, making sure they're on good um, uh, good therapy, ideally with a beta blocker, um, controversial whether to use like an angiotensin II receptor antagonist, things like that, but good medical therapy for the aorta. We also give them like aortic precautions. So you don't want this guy to go be a power lifter or right. a rugby player or things where they're doing big time Valsalvas, kind of that sort of thing. Uh, they, they do have the, the sports cardiology guidelines give them some activity restrictions for sure. Absolutely. All right, so we said that the mortality for at least a type A resection, if it's not repaired surgically, is sky high, 80% or more. If it's repaired, do we have a, do we know what the mortality, uh, let's say they survive the operation, yeah. do, we, do we know what we're looking at? Yeah, I know we always, uh, I don't know about you guys out there in the audience, but like, you know, we always get really excited. We have a successful operation. The patient's doing great. We send them to the ICU, um, and we feel good about it, and we should. Um, but I think these guys um, and gals who have had a type A uh, or a type B procedure are still pretty sick. So um, for those of us who end up having ICU practices, um, you know, it's important to remain vigilant. So there are different papers that, that look at this, but um, just as, as an example to talk about one, um, if you take a group of patients who had successful type A repair and then they come to the ICU, um, the re-op for bleeding risk in their ICU stay is somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 15%. So many of them will have to go back. Um, up to 5 to 10% of them will actually have a delayed sternal closure, which, as, as those of you who have cardiac surgical ICU practices know, can be, can be very, very morbid. Um, you know, somewhere between 15 to 30% of them will have acute kidney injury during their ICU stay. Maybe up to 10 to 20% of them will need dialysis. Um, many of them, um, you know, 5 to 10% or more will need to be trached for prolonged um, uh, respiratory support. Uh, and then the in-hospital death rate um, 
can be in you know groups who do this a lot as low as 10%, but as high as 30%. And so even if you get a great surgical repair, um, they're high-risk patients. Um, and, and that, you know, I think has implications for, for um, setting up our ICU and our kind of team-based specialty care to be as efficient and as effective as possible. Because even um, if we get them out of the operating room, most of these guys can still have a rocky road in the hospital. Absolutely. All right. Tom, is there anything you think we didn't touch on uh, on this topic that you want to mention before we close? You know, I, I think that um, I think probably the, the thing I would emphasize is that this is, uh, I think, an important disease that you guys will see in your clinical practices, be they just in the operating room and, and you're doing these cases or if you have an ICU practice um, and, and you're seeing them. And so um, when I talk to our fellows on the cardiac surgical side, on the cardiology side, um, I kind of give them like the, the Ten Commandments of Acute Aortic Dissection. So I, I can leave you with the, with the Ten Commandments of, of Acute Aortic Dissection. Um, and these are things that, that um, uh, people who write about this a lot in the literature have written about. The, these are things that I've learned over time. Um, and so the, the thought among people who do this a lot is that these are some pearls who can help you. That's great. Um, so I think the, the first commandment is that you have to remember to consider the diagnosis. If you're in a position where you're seeing undifferentiated patients um, prior to surgery, um, it's hard to make this diagnosis unless you think about it, right? So we talked about some of the cognitive heuristics you can use. So be it the thunderclap chest pain, migratory chest pain, the chest pain plus syndromes, or whether your patient looks marfanoid or looks like they have a connective tissue disease. So those are things that are going to push you to consider the diagnosis. The second point that we actually didn't touch on very much, uh, only tangentially, is that it is important to examine these patients. You're going to look for a pulse deficit, a pulse down mass. You're going to look for the blood pressure. You're going to assess whether their hypertension is well controlled, right? Uh, we sort of allude to that. So I think there is a role for bedside assessment and bedside reassessment um, in this disease. We didn't talk a lot about imaging, but the third commandment is that you have to have good imaging. Um, and the workhorses of diagnostics are really going to be CT angio, or if you can't get CT angio for uh, reasons of contrast or kidney injury, then a transesophageal echo, uh, be it in the operating room with, with our cardiac anesthesia colleagues or um, upstream with cardiac anesthesia or cardiology colleagues, can be very, very helpful. So CTA or TEE are really the workhorses of, of imaging. Right. Um, the fourth pearl is that type A dissection is a surgical emergency, right? We talked about that. The implications of surgical delay, the outcomes are worse. Um, and then the fifth pearl is that the type B patient, it's important to define them as complicated or uncomplicated. And we talked about complicated being malperfusion, refractory hypertension, refractory pain, impending rupture. Um, the sixth commandment is using good medical therapy. We talked about heart rate control and blood pressure control. Get that heart rate around 60. It's what the U.S. guidelines say. Get that systolic under 120, which is what our European colleagues say in their guidelines. Um, the seventh commandment is serial imaging if your patient has residual dissection. So we talked about the importance of an imaging protocol um, to see when those guys need to come back for another intervention if you have residual dissection that's managed medically. Um, we, we alluded to commandment eight, which is good medical therapy of the patient after dissection rate, so beta blockers and maybe ARBs to really uh, prevent future events. Um, the ninth commandment is looking at those cousins of aortic dissection, so the intramural hematoma, the penetrating atherosclerotic ulcer, and the pearl there is that most of those guys should be treated like a dissection. They end up being really, really similar. Um, and then the final kind of the 10th commandment is just to remember that these can be really humbling diseases, both in their presentation and their management, and the patients are really sick, and that the, the best approach is one that's 
um, rooted in bedside assessment, right? So getting a good history, getting a good physical exam, and then having good imaging, and then finally having good collaboration. So th- these end up being team efforts. The the operative team, the surgical team, the anesthesiology team, the ICU team, the consultant teams, all of the imagers, all of these guys end up having a role, um, and that ends up being being really important to getting these guys through. And so. Um, you know, we're, we're here at Hopkins, right? So I think it's in our contract, right, that you have to end with a quote from Osler when you, when you do a Hopkins thing. So Osler said a couple of things that are very relevant to acute aortic dissection. He said that life's tragedies are usually arterial, which I think is true, right? And we should keep that in mind that these are really, really uh, important diseases. The patients are sick. They need the highest level of expertise to get them through. And then Osler also said that there's no disease more conducive to clinical humility than aneurysm of the aorta. And we can extend that to say dissection of the aorta. It's a humbling disease. Um, and so, you know, Lean on your surgical colleagues, lean on your ICU colleagues, lean on your specialty colleagues, um, and, you, and I think that's how the patients uh, end up doing well. Awesome. Tom, this is fantastic. I love ending with those Ten Commandments and those quotes. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I think this has been really useful. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, and uh, you know, I really uh, appreciate the opportunity. All right. That was fantastic. So glad that Tom could come on the show. Let us know what you thought of the show. Go to ACRAC.com where you can leave a comment. Let us know, is this how you manage dissection? Did we leave something out? Is there anything you would add? Everybody can learn from your comments when you leave them on the website, ACRAC.com. There, of course, you can see all of the episodes as well as leave comments on any of them and sign up for the mailing list. Big thanks, as always, to Brian Park for doing the outlines and to all of you who are patrons of the show. Thank you for your support. If you are a fan of the show and you haven't already, or even if you have and you want to do it again, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. And if you're interested in being a sponsor, a patron of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C where you can become a patron of the show, even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge. It makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. All right, that's it for today. Thanks for listening. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Tom Metkus, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.